Bibles and turn with me to Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. Uh, that is sort of toward Psalms. Comes after Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. Uh, this is where we'll spend our next at least two and maybe three weeks. I, I was going to do this in one sermon, then there's just I realized as I prepared, there's just too much stuff in here for a preacher like me. Now some guys can do it, but I can't do it in one sermon. So we're going to spend a couple weeks in here at least. And it's worth our time. And so I've titled this sermon, but I don't see God. And you'll see why. You'll see why. I titled that hopefully as we walk through this. Now I'm going to read the, the whole, the, the entire first chapter uh, this morning. We're going to do a lot of reading. We're going to do a lot of reading of the, of the text. So anytime we spend more time in the text than we do listening to me, that's a good thing. Because this is God's Word. So let us hear now the Word of the Lord. I'm going to read chapter 1 of the book of Esther. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, this is a party, and he's great, and he's not shy about his greatness. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. The Lord, if they want you to drink, they're going to make you drink. Interesting detail. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, a little tipsy, a little buzzed, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him, including Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to king Vash, Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, Delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women. Now listen to this, get this. The queen's behavior will be known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded King Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So why do we have to come, right? So complementarianism is overturned. It's the fear. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. 
Now that's discipline, right? And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all this, the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king. Of course it did. And the princes, of course it did. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. This is the word of the Lord. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray. God, this morning we have before us an amazing story. I pray that you would give us eyes to see great things from your word. And you would work in us, God, to make us holy, even as you are holy. For your word soberingly tells us that holiness no one will see the Lord. And God, that we would see your sovereignty and your goodness and your mercy in spite of our foolishness from this text. And as we walk through Esther these next few couple of weeks, God, may you be glorified and may we be built up. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our sovereign rock and our glorious Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. So this is quite a cheeky little text. Some of you... Some of you were grinning as I read this. Look up to see your reaction. You had a grin. That's actually, as we're going to see, I think the proper response to some of these things. He said, what? So the men would be masters in their homes and things like that. So very countercultural, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But here's what I want us to note about this book, Esther. This book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, part of the canon of sacred Scripture, never once mentions... God. Never. So why are, why are we doing this? Then? Why, 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 preacher, why are, you, why are you doing Why are we even looking at this book? Well, it's in the Bible, and that's not the, you know, that's, that's the reason my parents always gave me. Why should I obey you? What's in the Bible? Well, I want something more specific. But God is never mentioned. But I'm going to argue that it is about God, just like the rest of the Bible, and hope we're going to see God, and we'll help you, I hope, see God. The Holy Spirit will help us see God as we work through this text these next couple of weeks, to see the Lord in the story of Esther. What a, what a wonderful story it is. We will see God's invisible hand in our everyday circumstances. It's very practical. It is a little bit comical in places because it's so absurd. Because this text is a little absurd, and that's part of the point of the writer, I believe. And so we're going to see God's hand in this and God's hand in our own lives as well even when we don't detect him, even when we think maybe he's not there, that maybe he's gone to sleep, or maybe he's on vacation, on a holiday, as our British friends love to say. We're going to see that God is there. Of course, he is. And now the context of Esther is one of the most perilous times for God's people in all the Old Testament. God's covenant people, of course, Israel or the Jews, those are synonyms. If you're new to those terms, Israel, the Jews, same people, God's covenant people, They've been taken captive by Babylon. Their temple has been destroyed. And now they are dispersed all across the empire, which is now ruled by Persia, who conquered Babylon. And thus the king, the king Ahasuerus, the Persian king. In the book of Esther, God's people, as we will see, face extermination. And say, well, that's nothing new, is it? The Jews faced extermination. We're going to see that more clearly as we reach the end of our, the, the, the first four chapters today. It's set somewhere around 479 to 480 B.C. in, the, in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire during this time, during the reign of, of King Xerxes is another name for Ahasuerus. Xerxes, around 479, let's say. Esther was written to tell the story of how the Feast of Purim became, came about, but it is far more than that, and yes, I'm going to say it, and you could predict it. It is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, and it doesn't mention God. You say, "Well, you said that about Job." Well, you'll, I will say that about Job in a few weeks, and you said that about Ecclesiastes. But it is okay. It really is. I guess I just love the whole Bible. I want you to as well. But I love it because it's a Cinderella story. We love them. We love the underdog, the Cinderella, don't we? We love that story. It's a Cinderella story. 
An orphaned Jewish girl rises up to become queen of Persia. She comes to the throne alongside the king and is used by God to intercede for and save the Jewish people. So in a sense, she's a little s savior. And that's really important, seeing how this fits into the, the flow of sacred scripture, of, of, of divine revelation, how the, you know, the, the Bible is an unfolding revelation of God and His grace, right? We've said this many, many times. We looked at Hebrews, we saw how that God has even given us the, uh, He's inspired not just the Bible, but the hermeneutic, how we're to understand the Old Testament as the New Testament writers did. And well, this is not mentioned in the New Testament, but it's going to become clear, I think, of the story of a mediator and all that. We'll see that later. Again, you're going to find a lot of humor in here in the story of Esther. And it's the humor of the absurdity, the absolute absurdity of sinning against your Creator. Think about it. It really is absurd that we as Christians continue to sin, isn't it? And then there's humor in it. We're going to see that through here. Again, we've seen a little bit of that this morning just in reading it. So I saw the bemused look on some of your faces, especially the ladies, like master of the home. And, you know, you're going out and the men are going to get, you know, the women are going to get bold. And they're going to overthrow the men. And it's going to be terrible. The hand wringing. Yeah, that's right. That's what, that's exactly what it means. That's what they're doing. But there's six main actors in this drama First of all, you've met one of them. You'll meet the rest uh, this morning. But King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he was a great Persian king known best to history for his invasion of Greece around 480 B.C. He reigned 25 years but was assassinated about a decade after the events that are recorded here in Esther. His son Artaxerxes I appears in Ezra and Nehemiah. He followed his father to the throne of Persia. Queen Vashti, well, you met her already. She didn't come to a very good end. She's the queen who's going to be removed from office and unceremoniously so. You've seen that already. I wonder why I want to read the whole thing this morning. And, of course, there's Esther, a beautiful but unlikely queen. In a very real sense, Esther will be the deliverer of God's people, which we will see over time. We'll meet her in chapter 2. And because of her stunning beauty and poise, Esther replaced Queen Vashti on the throne of Persia. We'll meet Mordecai, Esther's first cousin. He adopted Esther after her parents were, were, or died or were killed when she was a child. And so she raised her, she, he raised her as a father. So here, first cousins, but he was like a father to her. He was older, obviously. Mordecai was a low-level official in Persia. Loyal to Xerxes or Ahasuerus, loyal to the king. He's a crucial figure in this story. He, we're going to see him foil an assassination attempt on the, the king, help save God's people, the Jews, by learning Queen Esther of a dastardly, dastardly evil plot Haman cooks up to exterminate the Jews. He hid his Jewishness. He encouraged Esther to, to hide her Jewishness, her religion, not just her ethnicity, but her religion, her Judaism. Because that was a religious question uh, bound up in their identity. So he hides it, I think showing a bit of cowardice, and even in her, a bit of cowardice. I mean, she, they are somewhat heroic, but not entirely. They're like us. They're an admixture of good things and sin and grace and all, uh, and, and, and cowardice and courage and, and all the rest. But he'll later find courage to help save the Jews, save his people, and bring down the wicked Haman. Of course, there's Haman. You're going to meet him. Chapter 3, Scripture calls him here the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of God's people. He was a proud man, full of hatred, full of vanity, full of anger, full of self-love and pride, arrogance. And all these things prejudiced his judgments as the number two leader, the prime minister of Persia. And he will seek to exterminate the Jews. And a sixth actor that you won't meet by name, but you will meet by circumstance and I would argue is the main actor, just like he's the main actor in the drama of your life and the full court press of everyday life, and that's God. The sovereign, omnipresent, omniscient creator of the universe who 
reigns meticulously and rules and guides every circumstance of your life and mine. He's writing your story. That's the whole purpose of this doctrinal study of, the doc, of, of God's providence, isn't it? To show that it's not out of control, that it is all right, that we can trust Him. We can trust this God because He's at work in our lives and in us and through us. And so the first part of the plot, using those six actors, unfolds in the first five scenes, the first four chapters. And we see that here in chapter 1, Queen Vashti, well, she's given the boot. She falls from favor. The king calls for her, says, come, she's beautiful, wear your crown. It's been suggested by some commentators that that's what he wanted her to wear, just the crown. I don't know about that, but she was deeply offended by his egotism, by this request, obviously. And she says, no. Obviously, a strong independent streak. He was giving this banquet. She was giving a banquet for the women in the kingdom. And he requested her presence, arrive arrayed in your royal robes and looking beautiful so I can show off my trophy wife. She was his trophy wife and she said no, which is unheard of in this culture. That the, the queen, that the wife, that the woman would say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be paraded before these people as your, as your trophy wife, O king. And of course, he's, he's angry. I mean, verse 12 Queen Vashti refused to come to the, at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. He's been made to look like an idiot, to use a good theological term, in front of his court. He's been made to look terrible. Of course, he's prideful. And so, this kind of refusal in that culture would be virtually unheard of, and so she gets the boot, he kicks her to the curb because of her rebellion, he issues a decree that is empire-wide, that wives must honor their husbands, and husbands must be the master in their own homes. That's amazing, isn't it? So you've got to do this. I don't know how they're going to check on this to, uh, to ensure compliance. <laughs> but it's a mandate. We love the room board mandates today. Well, there you go. That's a mandate, an odd mandate. But it's, it's again, a little, a little bit humorous. 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws, the Persians and the Medes, verse 19, so that it may not be repealed. In other words, we've got this law on the books. We can't repeal it. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And I think he means better looking than she and more compliant than she. She's, a, she's better. She will not argue with you. She won't give you any lip. O king, and let the king give a royal position to another. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it, was, it is vast, 127 precincts, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Listen, ladies, we're making a law. You've got to be nice to your husbands. That's what he's saying. Kind of, kind of interesting. Do we have any law in the books in America like that? We a sign out there, like, you know, 55 miles an hour. Well, it's not 55 anymore. What, 70? Well, we drive like maniacs here. Might as well not have one in Louisville. But uh, I digress, right? You know, you've got, and husbands or wives, be good to your husbands and obey them. It's a law. Again, you see kind of the, kind of the building, sort of the absurdity. And again, this is, this is outside the church, of course. There's all kinds of implications. So, so where's God in all this? Well, he's invisible. And yet we know, don't we, that he's working behind the scenes to, to orchestrate all these circumstances. And it'll become clear later. I mean, that's his day in and day out in our lives. So scene two, we get a beauty contest in chapter two. And I'm not going to read it just for the sake of time, but I'm going to summarize it. You can read it later. I hope you've read it. That's why I sent those videos out. So you'll read in these sermons the three or four chapters uh, that we're gonna, uh, will consist in the sermon. So basically, they hold a beauty contest. And again, the absurdity is kind of heightened here. And we meet Mordecai in the context here, a Jew in Susa, the citadel, verse 5, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away by Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. They're all getting carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. 
The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so all the women, all the virgins, all the beautiful virgins are called in to appear before the king, to, to be brought before him. To be brought before him. Now, there was no option of saying no to this. This was not, there was no such thing as my body, my choice in ancient Persia. If the empire called you, you would come or you would be disciplined. And so they all came, including Esther, and she's beautiful. And so we read on down that Esther had not made known. She was a Jew. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And again, you get into some absurdity here. It talks about all the makeup they put on. They got, they got really dolled up. He wanted them perfumed and made up and their beautiful, these gorgeous clothes put on them and then parade them before me. And I will choose one. I mean, they had to be beautified for six months where they could appear before him, as a matter of fact. I mean, look at this. Read on down, verse 12. After, now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, for the women, since this was the regular period of beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women. When the young women went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So they were given, they were given everything and they were beautified, you see? And so he's just saying, get gorgeous. You, I mean, taking six months to get you to smell good? <laughs> Man, that, that, must have been, uh, that, that must have been one more period of time. You're putting, learning how to smell good, to look good, all these things. Of course, what do we see here? I mean, we see everything about this story speaks of an empire that runs entirely on superficiality. I guess that, that's the humor here. You're not supposed to say, well, this is biblical. This is where we get our, you know, our how women ought to be and how the home ought to be, how you know, although men are supposed to be the leaders in their homes and all that, of course we believe that here at Christ Fellowship, but this is not where we go for that, if this is new to you, okay? But this is an empire that runs entirely on banal superficiality, on external appearances with no concern whatsoever for integrity or character or the substance of who a person is at the core of their being. And of course, this is what? But the very opposite of God's values in Scripture, right? The very opposite, I mean, of course, because we aren't beautiful, right? There is no, be no one beautiful compared to the, beautiful, the beauty of Christ, and we have to be made beautiful, and there's all those things. But in God's economy, this is the very opposite. The absurdity of this. And so, one thing leads to another, and Esther is chosen. But again, verse 10, I think, is the key for this story. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai commanded her not to make it known. She wins the beauty contest. She's crowned the new queen. She is Jewish. And the king has no idea. None whatsoever. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast. They loved the party. In this, uh, in this empire, he gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. It was also granted remission of taxes to pro the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther wins the beauty contest, and they throw a party. Again, there's a lot of booze and a lot of stuff like that in this. <laughs> they did a lot of that in the Persian Empire, apparently. They had fun of a kind. And so scene three. Verse 19 of chapter 2. We find Mordecai, who's been introduced earlier. Esther's first cousin has raised her. He's, happens to be at the right place at the right time. Happens to be. You, you get me here? Get my drift here? Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her, her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. 
And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And don't miss that last detail. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Underscore that. That's going to be really, really important in the providence of God. I think we're going to see God just in this detail. Why that's going to be so important. Something seemingly so mundane, but God's in the details, right? So there's, a, there's an assassination plot on the, on the king's life. And so Mordecai just happens to be here at the right place at the right time. After Esther just happens to be Jewish, right? Happens to be beautiful. Mordecai just happens to be in the right place at the right time. So she won the beauty contest by just happening to be those things. No, not just happening because that's how God ordained it, right? God's in the details. Mordecai just happens to be at the right place at the right time. The king's gate overhears the whispers of this assassination plot and is able to warn the king through Esther, who just happens to be the new queen. And so we're going to see later a report. This, this, this writing down, this recording of what happens is going to lead to Mordecai being rewarded for what he's done to save the king's life. I'm getting ahead of myself. So we come to chapter 3, the fourth plot, where we have genocide, or at least an attempt at genocide, where Haman hatches a plot to kill the Jews. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. The king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him, Mordecai, day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So he's let the cat out of the bag. He's a Jew. He tells these workers at the gate. And they tell Haman. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. There's a lot of angry people here, a lot of alcohol, a lot of angry people. Those things just don't mix, do they? Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. There it is. He wants to kill them all, let God sort them out. The people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, he sought to destroy all the Jews. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's Prophet, it's not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that it may be put into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet, signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. There it is, that's who he is, the enemy of the Jews, Haman. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. We know what he's going to do. He's going to try to do to God's people. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples. To every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, 
and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And get this. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. So they issue this, this decree to annihilate the Jews, and they go out for beers. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Wow. Wow. So the story, the plot thickens. The Jews are to be exterminated. Of course, we know throughout history that's been the case, hasn't it? And, and of course, there's a reason we, we know for that as Christians. So we meet Haman, who's the, the antagonist. Esther, the protagonist, the main character, and the antagonist, the bad guy, this is Haman. The Agagite. And why was there such profound animosity between Haman and Mordecai? They clearly hated each other. Well, it was their lineage. It was their lineage. Haman was an Agagite. That's a not an in, uh, that, that is a very pertinent um, detail. He was a descendant of Agag, the, and the Amalekite, an ancient and bitter enemy of the Jews. So they just, they hated each other. A long, a long enemy of the Jews, the Amalekites. Natural enemies from of old, an old feud that remains. And so they just, they hated each other. And this is a really important manifestation, I think, really and truly, of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which began back in Genesis 3.15, where again, Satan is seeking to, who doesn't appear, but we know he's behind this, Satan seeks to exterminate the Jews. So Haman cast lots to see what date this should happen on. What date should we issue this decree? And so in the month of Adar, it's going to happen. Certainly not asking God, but relying on superstition. Of course, this is the best pagans can do, right? I always love it. You see on, you know, they'll talk about someone's dead, some celebrity, and they were godless and lived godless lives and talk about how they're in that big band in the sky or that big, you know, they're the bartender in the sky or whatever. And so they talk about that, you know, and it's just the best they can do, isn't it? And it's very, very sad when someone dies outside of Christ, right? They just have superstition. They just have platitudes and words. That's all they have. And this is all he's got. This is all Haman has, Right? It's all he's got is, let's roll some dice and let's, let's get this over with. So the decree goes out, sent by couriers all through the kingdom. And the callousness, the callousness shines through after this gut-wrenching edict that throws Susa into confusion when they just go out for drinks. Day's work is done. They just go out for drinks. It means nothing to them. So what's at stake here? You say, well, the Jews are at stake but what's at stake? If, if God's people perish here, what happens? Well, the promises of God perish. Jesus, the Messiah, was a Jew, who's to come from this line, it never happens. Jesus never comes. The Messiah never comes. So what's at stake? Well, just redemption. God's glory, yes, but redemption. That's what's at stake here. If the Jews die, if they're exterminated, then, well, we wouldn't be here right now. Biologically, we'd probably be here right now, but we would be sitting in church. We would not be the children of Abraham, would we? No, we wouldn't be here because there would be no Messiah. So this, that's what's at stake. It's everything's at stake. That's why this is such an important story because of what's at stake. And so we come to the fifth act we're going to look at today and last, the final act. Mordecai and Esther take a stand of chapter 4. Read verses 1 to 11. Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. <laughs> We're just if you're not going to have fun, you're not allowed in his kingdom, right? This is a sign of mourning. We don't want your tears here. Keep them to yourself. Again, that's kind of humorous. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take hold or take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her. 
and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was all about and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money, $10,000, a huge, huge sum, that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these past 30 days. So Mordecai comes. Mordecai realizes what's happening. He makes a request, first request of Esther here in these first 11 verses. He doesn't seek God's favor. Notice that he doesn't pray. He's sackcloth and ashes, and there's significance there, as we're going to see later. He's mourning. But it seems he places his hopes in human intervention with King Ahasuerus. And of course, that can be a means, as we know. But that's his first impulse, it seems, from the details we have here that God's inspired. And at first, Esther doesn't say whether she will go into the king or not. And you imagine the timing here. She didn't say, I'll do it. She just said, I need clarification. <laughs> I mean, assassination plots are very common in these days, as the Old Testament shows. And so the king was very picky about who was allowed into his entrance, which is... Uh, understandable. She's not been in the king's presence for 30 days. Not a good sign. He has a harem and so he's got all these women. So not a good sign at all. The things are going well. And so Mordecai makes a more emphatic request in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Key verses right here. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai is not easily deterred, and thankfully so. He points out that since Esther is a Jew, she can't expect to be spared any more than the other Jews. And verse 14 is critical. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come from another place. We're starting to see faith, aren't we, in Mordecai? It will come from another place. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so here God's providence is at least insinuated, I think, when he says, if Esther doesn't act, there would be a deliverer for the Jews from another place. It will arise. We, I think he's trusting God. It will arise from another place in, in God's providence. Presumable that one, one deliverer God, whom God would send. And would Esther be in such a position of royalty if God had not raised her up? You've come to a throne for such a time as this. Who raised her up? Well, God had raised her up. In spite of a dicey marriage to a pagan king, and her concealing everything about her Jewish lineage for the past five or six years, he's still using her. God is going to use her. And God does all kinds of sinners, doesn't he? In fact, that's the only kind of raw materials here on this earth he has to work with after Jesus went back to heaven to sinful people. He, as I love to say, draws straight lines with crooked sticks, as the old Puritans love to say. That's not my line, that's theirs. Thomas Watson, I believe, and, and others. God may have raised you up for a time. You may be raised up, I think, by God for such a time as this. And I think we see the hint of God in, in Mordecai's words here. I mean, he, he thinks there's a meaning to history at least. 
such a time as this. You've been raised up for this time. So there's a meaning to history. There's a God, there's a hand that's guiding history. You've been raised up for such a time as this. We know God is a God of history. Who can provide that except God himself? He's essentially saying the same thing we saw in the story of Joseph and in Genesis 45, 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. It's almost the same thing he's saying here. God sent you. Who knows that God may have sent you here for this purpose. And we see Esther's answer in verses 15 to 17. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. There we go. Why do we fast? We'll see in a moment. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. And I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. By God's grace, she's finding her courage, isn't she? Mordecai went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. Esther makes a life-changing choice right here. Up to now, she'd been a, what we might call an undercover believer, like many of us. We're Christians, but not so as you can tell, right? We should be able to sympathize with Esther. We're Christians, but just not too religious. Go to church on Sunday, smile a lot, wear the right clothes, but not so as you can tell. But she's no longer an undercover believer. As an exiled Jew living in Persia under the empire's rule, she had lived her whole life in two worlds, just like all Christians. We're, as Augustine said, we're citizens of two worlds, of two cities, of two kingdoms, right? The city of God, city of man. How are we going to live in that city? Citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this city. So her bravery before the king shows that she'd chosen her Jewish heritage, embraced it as her identity. In other words, she chose God. God's plan. God's sovereignty. And what does your life say that you've chosen? I don't mean here. I don't mean while I'm preaching in Sunday school. I mean Monday. And Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And all. What, what, what are those days? What does it say? What life choice have you made? Have you broken with this world? Are you following Jesus? Have you? Are you? Because Esther, in the hour of the covenant community's greatest need, she shows solidarity with her people. She asks Mordecai to gather the Jews for this three-day fast and sends her maids to fast as well. And here we see, I think, the invisible God make an appearance again. I mean, her fast would only make sense if it's a fast unto God, an appeal to God to do the miraculous and allow her to find favor with the king. What else is a fast for? It would just be superstition if it's not unto God, right? So again, here's the invisible God becomes visible. Because scripture, in Scripture, fasting is a means of expressing sorrow over sins and dependence upon God. Fasting would certainly be coupled with prayer. That's one of the things we do. We fast from something so we can pray so we can, we can pound the doors of heaven with our prayers. So we're centered on God. I mean, because fasting signals and pictures our total dependence upon Him. If, if, he if, if something must be done, He must do it. So what kind of people are they? Are Mordecai and Esther people with a robust theology and a strong faith in God? As some commentators argue, are they heroes? Or are they, as other commentators argue, just secular? Is this a simply a, an entirely secular tale about the survival of the Jews with the inner strength of these heroes of goodwill, Mordecai and Esther? Well, I don't think it's either. I don't think it's either. Certainly not a secular tale, or it wouldn't be in the Bible. But I don't think they're totally heroic either. I think one of the lessons here is this. As we come, as we prepare our hearts to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take care of just in a moment. Sometimes our heads are big and our hearts are small. And I'm going to say this because I love you and because I know this is true of me. For Reformed Christians, this is especially tempting. We have these massive heads full of great theology, big God theology, with these tiny little shriveled up, emaciated hearts in which we don't live it out. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard seminary students say to me, to me personally, I just don't like people. To which I'd say then get out of ministry and stop wasting your time. You've got no business here at seminary if you don't love people because that's the point. Whether you're going to be a professor or a missionary or a counselor or a pastor or something else, the ministry is about people. People. And our theology 
No matter how big God it is and God-centered it is, it's got to land on the ground somewhere in our lives, doesn't it? I think they were not living up to their theology. They had it, but they were, they were hiding it under a bushel. And we do the same when we fail to live it out. We believe a theology of grace, and then we're the most ungracious people in the church. It should never, ever, ever be that way, beloved, because we have been saved by grace alone. We've got to come to grips with people, don't we? You say, well, I'm an introvert. I don't care. That's not, the, there's none, that's not in the Bible, is it? An extrovert? Or what? No, 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 no. Some of, the, some of the best pastors I know are deeply introverted. They love their people and they minister to their people. But I digress. There's just a lot of ministry, future ministry people here. Know this is a good application, a good reminder for me. Good reminder for me. And sometimes our theology doesn't connect to all the issues of life until life hits the fan. And here it's hit the fan, right? And they don't really bring out God until life hits the fan. I've got a friend I pray for often, and he's, he gets cancer, and he, he, he starts asking for prayer. But the rest of the time, uh, who's God? doesn't go to church, doesn't care, or doesn't seem to care. If he does, you'd never know it. But I'm afraid we can do that in the church, too. We just come here, and we, we feel like it's intellectually stimulating or something else to come to church and hear the Bible preached and taught, and we like this, and, or it makes us good morally good people, and yet we don't live it out. We don't, we don't understand our theology if we don't live it out. I mean, Mordecai and Esther first respond to the crisis of Haman's edict as if God is not there at first. But as the crisis deepens, they eventually turn to him and, and act. Lesson two, it begs us to ask a vital question. Do we trust God? Do we really trust God? I, and I don't mean now. I mean when life hits the fan. Is he really sovereign? I mean, shouldn't our default be to trust him? I mean, shouldn't they have gone to God and said, Oh God, we cry out to you. Pray without ceasing. I know far too often that that's not my response, and this is what I do, and God's called me to do this, and yet it's not my response like it should be. I mean, my wife will tell me sometimes that she's right. Well, you're just acting like God isn't sovereign, preaching as if the gospel is not true. That's exactly right. And I'm rebuked and reminded and all that. So praise God for, for a good helpmate, right? We just act like God's not there. He's not sovereign. But look at the details. God is in these details, isn't he? He's doing this. It's clear. He's orchestrating. He's, he's building this drama. I mean, Mordecai and Esther, it takes them a little while, but they finally seem to come to the right, the right answer. But do we? Third lesson. Faith in God allows us to be risky for the sake of righteousness. It allows us to be risky for the sake of righteousness. If I perish, she said, I perish. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Very similar to the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three young Jewish boys in Daniel chapter 3. They're in the fiery furnace. They're in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, build this gigantic statue of himself. Says, worship it. They said, we will not. He throws them in the fiery furnace and they say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. God is able and he will ultimately in the end, I think they're saying, but he, he may choose not to here. We may burn up. But we will be rescued. Ian Duguid, commentator, says, By itself, all the fasting in the world could accomplish nothing for God's people in Persia. What they would need, and the boys in the fiery furnace seemed to get, was a mediator. A mediator. Someone who was willing and able to go and plead their case where they could not go, into the presence of the king. They could not appear in the king's presence to seek mercy for themselves. Someone else had to do it for them. I hope that just rung a bell. I hope that just rung a bell. As we think about the Lord's Supper, what the elements represent, the body and blood of Jesus, our mediator. So Esther had to act as well as to fast. You couldn't just, I mean, Christian faith is not just a, well, we just have faith and we do nothing. No, our faith leads us to act. She acts here. Our uh, robust faith, a robust Christian faith, faith in Christ is active. It does something. It doesn't just sit there. And she must take her life into her own hands, risking everything for the sake of her people. And she did so without any explicit promise from God to protect her. 
or to bring about a successful conclusion to her mission. There was no voice from heaven. There was no burning bush. There was no miraculous sign to persuade the king to overthrow the edict against the Jews. It didn't part the Red Sea. God would perhaps remain hidden. That's kind of the theme of Esther, the hidden God, the hidden but nonetheless omnipresent God, and allow many of his people to die. He might do this. We don't know. So we're going to stop here today and leave you hanging, and you'll read the rest, and you may know it already, but it's glorious, isn't it? May allow the people to die, including Esther herself. She may get killed. God's allowed this to happen on many other occasions in history. There's no guarantee of success when we stand up for God. If success meaning is get, getting what we want, big difference. There's always success if, if, God, if we die and we go to heaven. You shouldn't be able to threaten us with glory, right? That should never be a threat to us. But there's no guarantee of success if that means getting what we want. What we're asking God, do this, save my, save the Jews, save me. Let's all come out of this happy and healthy. Well, there's no guarantee of that. If I perish, I perish. Are those yours words, beloved? I'm going to trust God in this circumstance in my life. If it goes wrong, it goes wrong. But God is still good all the time. Because on another level, Esther's success is guaranteed and so is ours. God had committed himself to maintain a people for himself, not so they could be comfortable, but so they could glorify him. We're not called to be Christians to be comfortable because everybody in this country would line up for that, right? If we say if the prosperity prophets were right, what fool wouldn't want that? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. Man, I want every bit of that. It's not promised. It's not promised. But God has committed to us as well to love us, to keep us. We have massive promises in Scripture that He will be faithful to us in spite of the way things appear. Because in God's economy... I've said many times, say again, things are not always as they seem. I mean, no matter what sinful paths may have led Esther where she was, she was undeniably now in a position to glorify God by publicly identifying with her people and laying down her life if necessary to save them. And she might. It was up to God how he would bring glory to himself. Would she perish? Would she be a martyr for the cause of Christ, or will she be an instrument of, God, of God's deliverance? Well, we will see that, Lord really, in two weeks. You say, man, just as we're getting to the good stuff, well, that's why it's more than one sermon. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, and go ahead, those who are going to be passing out the elements can get ready, get us ready.